Hello there, my name is Kyle. I'm one of the leaders from Common Ground Church in Seapoint, and I'm so glad to uh, be with you today. And where are we? We are back in the Gospel of Mark for the next four weeks. And then after that, uh, throughout the rest of this year, we're, we're going to be dipping in and out of the Gospel of Mark. And um, let me quickly locate us in our Mark journey so far. Uh, the book of Mark has 16 chapters. And last year, we covered basically the first half of the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapters 1 to 8. We finished just before the end of chapter 8. And then last week, over Holy Week and Easter, we then went from chapter 14 to 16 and finished off the Gospel of Mark. And so what we're going to do now uh, throughout the rest of this year is close that gap from the end of chapter 8 to the end of chapter 13. And let me quickly catch us up on the story and Mark's intention, especially if you are joining us and you weren't part of the journey previously. Uh, Mark's gospel is an account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And it's the earliest account. And his version focuses primarily on the life and the actions of Jesus, uh, as opposed to majoring on his words and his teachings like some of the other accounts do. And basically, he's asking two big questions, essentially. Uh, who is this man? And what is he doing or what has he done? Those are the two questions that Mark is centering his gospel around. And he kind of gave the game away in the, the, the opening verse, the first verse. He started off the, the, the gospel of Mark like this. This is the beginning of the good news of Jesus, Messiah, the Son of God. He kind of just put his cards on the table right up front. And since then, he built the case by tracking through the life of Jesus of Nazareth um, and looking at his various interactions and activities with different groups of people. And some of it was the religious leaders. Sometimes it was societal outcasts. And most of the time, most consistently, it was his group of 12 disciples. And Mark just explored who this person is over the first eight chapters. And where we left off in the story at the end of last year is Jesus and his disciples are up north in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And they have just had their eyes opened and they've identified Jesus as the anointed one, as the Messiah, as the Christ. So he's no random carpenter. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a sage full of wisdom. No, he is the Messiah. He's the one who's come to fulfill the promises of God to Israel, to be God's chosen vehicle to bless the nations and bless the world and basically institute a whole new creation. That's who Jesus is. And today's passage, Mark 8, verse 31 to 9, verse 1, is essentially a sort of pivot point in the book. Okay, the revelation of who he is has taken place. And now Jesus, in the second half of the book, is going to reveal his mission and accomplish that mission. That's where we're going for the second half of the Gospel of Mark. And the story that we read today, this sort of pivot point in the book, um, we're going to look at it by basically asking four questions. The text itself basically answers these four questions, and we'll walk through them one by one. What is Jesus going to do then, as he was calling these disciples and this crowd together? What does Jesus invite us into? Why should we respond to this invitation? And how can we keep going on this path that he's called us to? So we're literally going to walk through the text and answer these questions as we go. And so uh, let's do that. And before we get going, maybe I can just say one thing. If you are tuning in, if you're listening in, you're watching, and you are not someone who considers yourself a Christ follower, you uh, don't confess Jesus as Savior, Lord, you're still exploring things, you're still exploring the Bible, maybe the big questions of life. Um, I trust that uh, as God is speaking today through me, um, you will have a lot of 
questions clarified. Uh, you will have things uh, explained hopefully a little bit better than you've ever considered them before. And hopefully you'll be in a better position to respond to the invitation that Jesus has for you today. So let's get going. All of us, let's answer the first question here. What is Jesus going to do? What is Jesus going to do? Let's go back 2000 years. They've just realized Jesus is the Messiah. And let's see what happens next. Verse 31 to 33. And he began to teach them that the son of man, that's himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, for Peter and the disciples here in this little exchange, uh, this is basically shocking thing after shocking thing after shocking thing, all just packed into a few sentences here, okay? So they've, they've rightly just identified him as the anointed Messiah. And in their mind, he's coming to restore Israel to glory um, so then they can be a blessing to the nations. They're picturing the Messiah coming and vanquishing the Romans and releasing the, the, the Jews of that generation from the Roman colonial occupation. That's what they have in mind. And then Jesus says, I must suffer. I must be rejected by all the rulers of Israel. And I must die. That's shocking thing number one. Shocking thing number one. Shocking thing number two, Jesus says that he'll rise from the dead after three days. Okay, so they would have believed, the disciples hearing this, um, like we believe now as Christ followers, that at the end of this age, there's gonna be a general resurrection of everyone who's ever lived. Some to everlasting life and some to everlasting judgment. But in their mind, they had no conception, firstly, that the Messiah would ever die. Secondly, that the Messiah would rise again by himself long before the resurrection of everybody else. Shocking thing number two. And so Peter pulls Jesus aside, okay, the person that he has just designated, the Messiah, and he rebukes him. He tells him off strongly. He's very stern with Jesus here for what he's saying. And the word rebuke here is the exact same word that Mark has used earlier in the gospel um, when Jesus is telling demons to shut up. It's a very, very strong word. But Jesus, um, seeing all the disciples, uh, probably recognizes that they actually all hold the same view as Peter. He's just the loudmouth spokesman of everybody. And so this brings in shocking thing, shocking thing number three. Jesus rebukes Peter. He rebukes him back and he says, get behind me, Satan. You're setting your mind on the things of man and not the things of God. It's a shocking statement. Shock after shock after shock. And the problem here for Peter and the problem in the situation was not that Peter had competing loyalties, but that he had incompatible ideologies. Let me just say that again slowly. The problem wasn't that Peter had competing loyalties, but that he had incompatible ideologies. So he wasn't actively taking the side of Satan and saying, I wanna get with Satan now and I love Satan. Wasn't saying that at all. But what he had done was he had co-opted and appropriated Jesus to his agenda. His human paradigm that Jesus came to smash the oppressors of Rome was wrong. And he was unable to reconcile these things. He was unable to reconcile these things. And we all need to beware of doing this. 
Okay, if, if Jesus came to overthrow the Roman oppressors and, and free that generation of Jews, he did the worst job in the world. And if you want to look at someone um, to, to, to actively, physically liberate a nation, Jesus is not the guy to look at. There's many other people to look at who did a better job than Jesus. But if he came to do something far deeper, far more paradoxical, if he came to defeat Satan, sin, and death, and begin a new creation project by dying on a cross and rising again to resurrection life, Jesus was completely successful. And that's what we spent last week celebrating over Holy Week and Easter. That's what Jesus was doing. That's the central thing of Easter. And that's what Jesus 100% accomplished. And I want to take a moment here to say, hey, if you're exploring Christianity, you're exploring Jesus, and this idea, this notion of some random dude 2,000 years ago, dying on a cross in the Middle East, if that just sounds a bit ridiculous and it sounds a bit foolish to you, um, I wanna just honestly say to you, you're not crazy and, may, and just let you know that. You're not crazy. You're not crazy to think that that is wild. It is wild. And we acknowledge that. We 100% acknowledge the craziness of that. And Peter here couldn't get his head around it when he first heard it. So I just wanna let you know, you're not crazy if that's your first thought because these are God's ways and they're not our ways, okay? And I personally think there's a lot of logic and there's a lot of reason. And if you know God and you trust God and you grapple with these things and you think through them, they make a lot of sense. They make a ton of sense, but it is surprising and it is bizarre. The whole thing is a massive paradox and it might not be what we would choose if we were trying to figure out how to fix the world and make it right and reconcile people to God. But I just want to say, we're not blissfully unaware of how ridiculous it looks. But at the same time, I want to say, we totally believe that it is both the wisdom and the power of God to save us from death and sin and reconcile us back to God. So I just wanted to pop that out there for you. So, Jesus has now basically set us on our trajectory, right? For the rest of the gospel of Mark, he's marching towards the cross. That's where he's going, to his death. And this leads us to our next question, which is this. What does Jesus invite us into? What does Jesus invite us into? That's what he's doing. That's where he was going. What does he invite the people then and us people today into? In verse 34, he carries on. He was talking to his disciples. And now he says, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, much bigger group now. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Okay, so Jesus is heading towards the cross and the resurrection, the glory of the next age where sin and sorrow and death is removed is gonna come through the cross. And now Jesus throws out this invitation to the crowd and he throws out this invitation to us. He says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone wishes to come with me, if anyone wishes what I'm going to get, okay, it's a, it's a personal invitation. Uh, it's a voluntary invitation. If, if, if you want to, if you wish to, to do this, then this is where we're going. And it's an invitation to get resurrection glory and resurrection honor via the cross, just like Jesus it's an invitation to literally go in the direction he is going. And he says, if anyone wants what I'm offering, if anyone wants what I'm offering, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. So let's dive deeper into what he's saying here. Deny yourself. 
deny yourself. He's not simply saying, um, deny yourself some things. So he's not, he's not saying, um, deny yourself chocolate for Lent, for example. Um, don't get me wrong, denying ourselves, thing will come, denying ourselves things will come as a result of what he's saying here. But what he's actually saying here is, deny yourself. Deny yourself. It's to remove yourself as the center of the world. It's a fundamental reorientation of life. Okay, one commentator said this, when Jesus, what Jesus calls for here is thus a radical abandonment of one's own identity and self-determination. And a call to join the march to the place of execution follows appropriately from this. And so it's gonna look like denying your individual agenda denying your social agenda, denying your national agenda, denying your religious agenda, denying your ideological agenda. That's what Jesus was getting at when he was speaking to Peter. It's about giving up your right to dictate right and wrong in your own eyes. And as an outcome of this, as an outcome of this self-denial, then flows the fact that we will have to deny ourselves certain things. Okay, there'll be certain things that you desperately wanna say and you'll need to deny yourself. There'll be certain things that you will want to keep and you'll have to deny yourself and let those things go. Okay, we'll want to pursue certain things, but we'll have to deny ourselves and not go down those paths. And if you've been a Christ follower, honestly, for more than a day, you've probably experienced something of this in some shape or form, however big or small. And it's not easy. It's not easy and it comes with consequences, which is exactly why Jesus follows this up with the next part of the sentence. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. And as we know from last weekend, the cross was uh, the most well-known, the most shameful type of Roman execution. And it was normal um, in Roman territory for a condemned person to actually carry their cross beam from the place of judgment to the site of execution. It happened to Jesus. He was helped along the way by Simon of Cyrene. He carried Jesus' cross for him at points. But they all knew that when Jesus spoke about carrying your cross, picking up the cross, he was talking about execution. He was talking about death. He really was. He was saying, if you wanna follow me, if you wanna follow me, do not expect an easy time. Don't expect an easy time. Do not expect to have all your hopes and all your wants and all your expectations met. Don't expect that. You may have heard a very famous quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor, theologian in Germany during, the, during Nazi Germany. And um, he was executed literally a few days before the concentration camp that he was in uh, was liberated. Uh, literally days before the war ended. And he had this famous quote. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And every single commentator agrees that in this passage, when Jesus is talking to the disciples and he's talking to the wider crowd here, he has in mind very real, very literal, very physical death as the, the possible outcome for following Jesus. And it's important to just take a moment to remember 10 out of his 12 disciples here were martyred for their allegiance to Jesus and for their identification with Jesus. Now, bring it to our day and age, our context. We are currently not facing 
the death sentence for proclaiming the name of Jesus and holding to his words and holding to his teachings. But denying ourselves and taking up our crosses and following him still does come with a cost in our day and age. And those costs are going up if you, if you haven't noticed. But what I wanna do is take a moment here and just pause and say, what is Jesus not saying? I wanna just clarify for a second what Jesus is not saying here. Um, he's not saying seek persecution. He's not saying go and find persecution because then you'll really know that you're my disciple. He's not saying that. He's not saying go and stir up strife and ruffle feathers so that you get a bit of flack. He's not saying go and be an idiot on social media and go and like prod the bear. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying if it's not hard, it's not God. Okay, that's not what he's saying. Christ follows, I trust that we know that there are good gifts and blessings and the grace of God should be flowing in our lives and there should be great experiences for us as Christ followers. And I'm trusting that we know that as children of God. And he also doesn't have in mind here all hardships. That's not what he's getting at, okay? Um, there are some hardships that, that happen to everyone, like sickness and death. We are acutely aware of this right now. Hardships affect everyone. There are some hardships that are literally brought about by our own sin and our own stupidity. And that's also not what he's getting at. We, we deserve those consequences that we get from those acts. And we're not meant to be intentionally, again, bringing hardship into our lives as a way to get glory. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about here are the hardships we face as a result of denying ourselves, identifying with Jesus and being about his mission. Hardships that result from those things. And that's gonna look like different things for different people at different times and different places. And so we all need to, figure out what that looks like for ourselves. And we'll chat about that just now. But I mean, here's some examples, okay? It, it's gonna look like saying no to that relationship with that person, because even though you desperately want it, God is saying, no, my child, that is not for you. That is not for you. It's gonna look like not retaliating when everything in you wants justice and vengeance. It's gonna look like not retaliating. It's gonna look like turning the other cheek and forgiving. It's gonna look like giving up that Wednesday night to commit to gathering with God's people at Life Group rather than taking the easy route and just chilling at home and watching Netflix. It's gonna look like being generous with your finances. It's maybe gonna look like saying no to that job or not ending up getting that promotion. It's gonna look like telling people what you really believe when they ask you. It's gonna possibly look like being mocked for your narrow-mindedness. It's gonna possibly look like being called a bigot even though that's not what you are. It's gonna possibly look like being called evildoers. You go and read the book of First Peter. It is all about Christians being persecuted, but particularly it shows long before physical persecution ever comes, that persecution starts as verbal and it starts as social. So you go read First Peter 2 verse 12. Peter writing to Christ followers, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so those who don't know and love God, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Don't miss that. You're gonna be going about doing good deeds in the name of God, stuff that God says is beautiful and people will call you evildoers for that. Don't miss that. And there's something for all of us to contemplate now, uh, today, over the coming weeks, 
I think we all need to ask ourselves this question. Here's the question. Am I really denying myself and carrying my cross? Am I really denying myself and carrying my cross? And no one else can answer this for us. No one else can answer this for us. And probably the worst thing we can do is look around and compare ourselves to others and say, well, they don't seem to be doing that, so I'm probably doing better. That's the worst thing we can do. And there might be things to thank Jesus for, and I, I trust there is, and I pray there is, okay, that he's got a hold of your heart, that you can see where your faith is real and it has traction, and you can see that you're denying yourself and you are taking up your cross, and that's real, and you can see it in your budget, and you can see it in your calendar, and you can see it in your conversations. I really hope that there is, there is positive stuff that we can see there. But we all need to be asking ourselves, what should carrying my cross look like in my place and time? What should that look like in the place I find myself in? And we all need to get with Jesus and get with the scriptures and look at our lives and consider and ask ourselves, are we shrinking back in some places? Are we compromising in some places? Are we hiding our light? Are we shying away from truth? Are we actually ashamed and embarrassed by Jesus and what he has to say? Let's get real and ask ourselves these questions. And what I want to um, say at this point now is, let's also not let wisdom be an excuse for this, okay? And what, we, what I mean here is when we take the Bible's teaching on wisdom, which there's good, beautiful stuff, tons of it. I'm loving the wisdom literature this year. But what we do is we insert it as an excuse or a justification for why we're denying Jesus in this little moment or this little conversation or whatever it might be. And we're denying Jesus before watching a world that actually so desperately needs him. Let's not do that. Let's not do that. And this doesn't mean that we need to die on every single hill. That's not what I'm saying. But I guess, I guess my genuine concern is that I wonder if there's not a lot of us who actually aren't dying on any hills for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. Okay, I, we're, not even, we're not even getting shot at because we're nowhere near the hills, let alone dying on them. That's my concern. And I know there's, there's not a literal gun to your head right now. And uh, there's, you know, you're not needing to take a literal bullet for the name of Jesus. But I just want to make sure, are we even standing up and taking the metaphorical pea shooters right now that might be facing us? These are real questions I want us to grapple with. And here's just a tiny, ridiculous example from my own life from about eight years ago that I hope makes the point here of what compromise um, can look like and denying Jesus can look like. So uh, it's eight years ago, give or take, and I was trying to make it in the film industry and particularly in the acting space. And, you know, I was mixing with the sort of actors of my generation locally here in Cape Town. And I was trying to get gigs and this and that. Um, and what I, I got to this point where I, was, where I realized I, I don't want to unnecessarily offend anyone um, and compromise an opportunity, uh, you know, to get that gig or get a foot in the door with that director or whatever it might be. And so what I did one day is I, and I was a sold out Christ follower at this point, sold out Christ follower. And I went one day and I went into my Twitter bio and I just simply removed um, a few words the words were follower of Jesus. I just removed those, deleted them. Very small thing. No one probably would have noticed. But I justified it with wisdom. I justified it with wisdom. I said to myself, if I just remove this now, it'll give me the gap later when I've got more influence to chat to people about Jesus and the fact that I'm a follower of Jesus. I justified it with wisdom. It was a small act that clearly displayed denial, but not denial of myself. 
not denial of myself. One last thing I want to say under this question is that Jesus says all of this up front. He says all of this up front. And today he's saying it again to us as Christ follows, as a reminder. But I just want to say, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when your life takes on the shape that Jesus is saying it should. If you literally go and type into your ESV digital Bible and you search for, do not be surprised, type in those words, you'll get two results that'll come up. Come up and they're both talking about this topic. Okay, 1 John 3.13 says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And then 1 Peter 4 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Countercultural stuff here. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. That's dumb. Don't suffer for that stuff, Jesus says. Yet if anyone <clears throat> suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. <clears throat> let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. It's a wonderful passage that reminds us up front, <clears throat> this is what we're getting ourselves into. So Jesus, <clears throat> he invites us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him, which leads to the next question, which is this. Why should we respond to this invitation? What, some of you might be listening here and you're thinking, yes, why on earth should I respond to this invitation? So let's read the passage and then unpack that. Verse 35 to 38. So Jesus continues his, his sentence here. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what is it man to, to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Again, just a reminder what Jesus is talking about here um, with these disciples at this time was losing their actual lives, dying for the sake of Jesus' name and the gospel. That's exactly what Jesus was talking about here. But there is that wider application, obviously, talking about dying to ourselves every single day and not preserving our safety and not preserving our reputations and not preserving our popularity. And the question we're asking here now is, well, why do it? Why, why do this, okay? It seems like there's a lot to lose. And if you actually sit and think about it, there is a lot to lose. There is a lot of reputation that can be lost. There is a lot of popularity and friendships that stand to be lost here if we're truly doing this. And here's Jesus' big answer. His big answer here is simply, it's worth it. It is worth it. The reason you should take up Jesus' invitation to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him is because it is worth it. That's the reason he says here, we should take up our cross. 
that we should deny ourselves, take up our cross, because, literally says that, the word for is because, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will find it. Okay, the paradox of the cross as the way to victory is also the paradox of our own lives. It's also meant to be the paradox of our own lives. Jesus is calling us to a radical abandonment of ourselves. Okay, our self-autonomy, our self-expression, even a radical abandonment of our self-care at times. And he says, this leads to true life. That's what he means by life. The life that is truly life, okay? He's talking about life to the full, the presence of God now, the experience of new creation now, the hope of a bodily resurrection on the other side of death. Life, eternal life. That's what he means by eternal life. And he says, it's worth it. It's worth it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? Nothing. It doesn't profit us at all. It is only loss. That is Jesus' point here. It is only loss. For what can a man give in return for his soul? Nothing. Nothing. Only Jesus can pay your debt on the cross. Denying yourself is worth it and denying Jesus is not worth it. True life is worth more than the whole universe put together. Okay, knowing God as your father is worth it. Being transformed into the likeness of Jesus is worth it. Knowing that you will physically rise from, dead, uh, from death on the other side of the grave is worth it. Saying no to sin is worth it. Giving up your time and your money and your energy for the expansion of the gospel is worth it. Seeing people coming to faith and being baptized and walking in newness of life is worth it. Getting rejected by friends and family for your beliefs about God or money or sexuality is worth it, Jesus says. Getting strung up on Facebook before the world and being called narrow-minded or a bigot or intolerant is worth it. Those who persevere to the end will be saved. The Bible keeps telling us it is worth it. It is worth it. Gaining the whole world and losing out on life is not worth it. It's not worth it. Saving our skin, saving our lives, saving face results in destruction, Jesus says, and it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Indulging in fleeting pleasures is not worth it. Being rejected by Jesus when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels is not worth it. It's not worth it. Let's not be ashamed of Jesus. Let's not shy away from the truth of the gospel. Let's not be embarrassed about what we believe. It's the very thing the world needs. Let's not hide it away. Let's not shrink back. Okay, just think of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. Just consider what Jesus said there. One of the many things he said there. He said, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Let's enter by the narrow gate of Jesus and his death on the cross and let's walk the narrow hard road because it's worth it. It's gonna shape us, it's gonna mold us and it leads to glory. It is worth it. And lastly, on this point, maybe I can say, um, 
One more thing, and it's a sort of it's a pastoral word. I'm not drawing the, the point from the text, but it's 100% true nonetheless. And it's this. Denying ourselves and carrying our crosses helps others to do the same. It helps others to do the same, others around us. Okay, I journey with several people whose denial of themselves is so obvious and so clear and so big every single day. And it's that much harder for them when they look around and they see people sometimes in their community who don't seem to even have a cross to bear. Even though they do, but they're just going about life and not bearing it. Friends, this is not just a way of finding life. It's a way of loving others. It's a way of loving others. And this is why we should respond to this invitation. It's worth it on so many levels. It's worth it on so many levels. But now, for those of us who have responded and we are walking on this path, let's ask the last question, which we'll get an answer for. How can we keep going on this path? How can we keep going on this narrow, hard path that we need to endure? Mark 9 verse 1, the, the last little sentence here that Jesus says in this gathering with his disciples and the larger crowd. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So Jesus ends off this invitation to his disciples and the crowd by strengthening them with the knowledge that they will see and experience the very real power of God and the kingdom of God at work. They'll see it. And that's either gonna be in the next story at the Mount of Transfiguration or at his resurrection when he triumphs over death uh, or when he ascends to the Father to receive his kingdom or when he pours out the Spirit in power on Pentecost to empower his people. Whichever one of these Jesus is 100% getting at, and it's possibly the whole thing, whichever, whichever one it is, regardless of what it is, he's saying, you will see the power of God and it will be available. And friends, 2,000 years later, we have seen the power of God. We have seen the kingdom coming. All those things have happened. On the cross, Jesus defeated Satan, sin, and death, and he rose again. Okay, we can see the kingdom of God spreading across, across the globe. We can see that the future age has already broken in amidst this fallen world. Jesus called us not only to deny ourselves and carry our crosses, but don't miss this, to follow him, to be in proximity to him, to be with him. He walks the road with us. We never walk alone. If you're a Liverpool fan, you, you know that line. We never walk alone. And it won't always be easy. It's gonna be a wrestle in this life because we're, we're caught between two ages, this fallen age and the age to come. We're living in the tension of both. But if you trust Christ and you are following him, then you are an adopted child of God, okay? You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You have been declared not guilty before the throne of God. You are a new creation right now. You will rise again with Jesus on the other side of death to everlasting life. And that eternal life is in you right now. But your body has not yet been redeemed. 
Your body has not yet been redeemed. We're waiting for that. And the world around us doesn't recognize and love the person or the words and the works and the way of Jesus. And so the struggle is gonna consistently be upon us. We're on the road to glory, okay? The world and the struggles of this life will not compare to the glory that awaits us. But we are still on that road and there is a cross to carry until we get to the end of it. But we're not alone, as I've said. Christ is with us. His spirit is empowering us. And I love this. Generations of Christ followers cheer us on from the heavenly places. And we have brothers and sisters around us every single day in our community to stand alongside and walk together. So just listen as I close here reading from Hebrews. Just listen to the author of Hebrews um, pushing this home to us. He says this in Hebrews 12 verse three onwards. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those are all the saints that have run the race before us and are now at the other end of the finish line cheering us on. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance. He says that because we will need it. We will need to endure. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then just listen to his closing line here. Consider him, consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider the sufferings of Jesus. Consider the backlash that he received so that you may not grow weary faint-hearted. Friends, Jesus denied himself. He bowed to the Father's will to make a way for you and I to get to glory and to be shaped and molded on that journey. When we are tempted to shy away and maybe not die on certain hills, remember Jesus died on a hill called Calvary for your sake and mine. Consider him. Fix your eyes upon him. And if you're not a Christ follower and you've been listening to this message today, now's your gap. Now's your gap to respond to this radical invitation. It's radical. I can't, there's, there's no way I can, I, can, I can package it more neatly for you. It is radical. He says, come, deny yourself. Deny yourself, remove yourself from the center of your world. Rethink everything in light of Jesus as the Lord of the universe and trust him. Trust him. Trust him when he says that he died for your sins and that can reconcile you to God and restore that broken relationship. And trust him and take the first step in a new life on that road to glory. It's a radical invitation. The whole thing from start to finish is radical. And the choice is now yours. Will you take him up on that offer or will you not? But remember, it is worth it. Let's pray. Father, what a, what a passage, what a challenging bunch of words that you had for your disciples and the crowd then, and you have for all of us listening today.
I thank you that you put this up front, that you've asked us not to be surprised when we have to bear crosses in this life, when we follow you. But God, overall, remind us it is worth it for all the reasons we have mentioned because it is the life that is truly life. Remind us that it is worth it. Denying ourselves, taking up our cross for the name of Jesus and for the sake of the gospel, it is worth it. Help us to deny ourselves and not shy away. We don't want to be those who are denied by you on that day. So we thank you for your journey towards the cross. We thank you that you were rejected and you were killed and you went through death and wrath for us so that we could find resurrection glory and eternal life, not just now, but then in the midst of our broken world. Help us to be a city on a hill. Help us to have our lights shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and glorify you ultimately on the day of visitation. God, work in us. Help us to grapple with what it looks like in our day and age to truly bear our crosses and help us love and glorify you before watching world. Amen.